Hey now, welcome to episode number four of Where Wine Takes You, where we keep it 100% and get real with the people, the winemakers, tastemakers, grower, whoever is making Paso Wine Country so special. I'm your host, Adam Montiel. If you're just joining us here for the first time, I'm so happy you're here. What's cool about this podcast is that all the previous episodes will still play perfectly right now. So I definitely encourage you to catch up. Names like Janelle Ducey from J. Ducey Wines and Josh Beckett from Peachy Canyon in episode one. Episode two was unforgettable. We had the godfather, Gary Eberly of Eberly Wines, and one of my favorite people ever, Jordan Fiorentini, the winemaker for Epic Estate Wines. Last episode, we kicked it with Eric Jensen of Booker, who actually made some national news right after our episode, and of course, Austin Hope from Austin Hope Wines. All these guests just being real. You get them in their most true form, they're disarmed, they're relaxed, and they're just talking about their story, which is unique, but then something that we all share, and that's the love for Paso Robles Wine Country. As always, you can visit PasoWine.com for the latest in Paso Wine Country, as well as help you plan your trip here. These wineries are open, they're excited to see you, they are ready to help you have a truly unique experience, but in a safe way that you can feel good about. Tin City popped up a few years back, and it's more or less an exciting collective of men and women making everything from beer to wine to spirits to cider to craft olive oil. I mean, it's really something. The vibe is unlike anything else. And like Paso, it's a micro version of what can happen when you get so many fun and loving and talented people in an area to create and see what comes of it. Today, we'll meet Brian Teresi. He's from Giornata Wines. He's OG Tin City, which is saying something because even though it's still pretty tight-knit and it's only a handful of years old, it is growing super fast. In addition to Brian's Giornata Wines, which does a lot of fun Italian wines and uses skin contact, makes some really exciting wines. He and his wife also have Eto Pasta, which is a stone's throwaway, also in Tin City, where they specialize in high-end pasta made right here. And this stuff is going gangbusters. Its popularity is nuts. I mean, I'm not surprised because it's so good. Well, the quality is through the roof, but stores are picking it up. The restaurant scene is picking it up. If you are not familiar with Edo Pasta, you are missing out and you will know all the 411 by the end of this podcast. Our second guest today, Dorothy Schuler of Bodegas Paso Robles. She's one of my favorite interviews because there is no one like her. Another guest that pulls no punches, which you know I love, and she is just as smart as she is sassy, and I love her take on so much, and even more, I love her wines. Here she talks about choosing your path in Paso and what sets Paso apart. People accept the different here a lot more easily than they do in other places. So that's why you're going to have people who are different here. Like when Stefan first came here, he wanted to make wines he couldn't make in France. Well, he can make them here. Yeah, Stefan Asseo, Love and Tour. Right. So people come here just so they can be different. It's special about here, but it's also, a, as we all know, it's a California thing. Is that right? Well, I'm born and raised in California, so... You're... It's a California thing. You, you, you don't want to stand out on the East Coast, you know. You want to fit into the mold. Right, right. You want to be like everybody else. Here it's all about, check me out, I'm different. Yeah. I'm cool. I don't know if it's all about that, but it's perfectly okay. Yeah. 
it's more than okay. More with the one and only Dorothy Schuler from Bodega's Paso Robles in a bit. My first guest, Brian Tariti from Giornata Wines. Now, when these guys want to do something, they make sure they do it right. They really go out of their way to not only get the quality and everything down pat, but really help their fans down the same path of understanding what they're about. I really like these folks. If it's making Italian wines, you better believe it's spending time making wine in Italy, working there, living there, getting down to what's really real and the why. And you'll hear some of that same MO that went into his next Italian-inspired passion, which we will share with you as well. I show up to Tin City and get to Giornata. Although it's hip and cool, Tin City is very much a working industrial area. It is not uncommon to yield to a forklift or hear the sounds of trucks or equipment backing up and things are going on all around you all the time. It's one of the things I love about Tin City. And this stop to Giornata is no difference. Give me that mm-hmm sound, we'll get by, we pass on down till the job is camped out in the trees, it will simplify good company. We are in a working Tin yeah, City area. Yeah, yeah. That is a truck. And there's going to be forklifts probably backing up near us yeah, and everything. Oh, yeah. There's always stuff. But that's happening. the vibe that I love here about Tin City. Lean and mean. You are a small producer, but you pack not only a quality punch, but you really step outside the bounds of norm to make some really exciting wines. Yeah, I mean, it's always been, you know, an eyes toward Italy. So my background, I worked my second harvest in Italy in a really, really cool winery in Tuscany called Isole Elena. Um, winemaker is this guy named Paolo DeMarchi, and, and he he's always kind of been a mentor to me. And, you know, busy guy. He actually now has a winery in, in Tuscany and a winery up north. But, um, you know, I got to work with Sangiovese, and, and he also did a lot of experimental things. He was one of the few guys in Tuscany to work with Chardonnay and, and do some more international stuff. So through that exploration, I got to travel a lot. I spent time in northern Italy, southern Italy, went to Sicily, and visited hundreds of wineries probably over, over the course of a few years. And, and I really wanted to bring kind of the attention to detail, the Italian sensibility, here to Paso. And so that's not only in like the style of grapes I use, but also um, just the kind of balance and finesse that I try to bring to wines is really with an eye toward Italy because the Italians, they make wines very differently than the French do. And French winemaking is really what inspired most of California winemaking. So, you know, I take a different approach and that's something I try to bring to Giornata. And Paso is really the perfect place to do it, right? Why Paso for you? Well, so I, so my wife and I, she's a viticulturalist. We met over at Fresno State. Her experience was up in Napa and Sonoma. I'd worked at Rosenblum in the Bay Area. I worked in Italy. And originally, we thought we'd end up up north. My folks are in Sonoma. But we started looking around the state, and we really were exploring and researching what really made Italian wines the way they are, and it really turns out it's the soil. You know, the same soil that the Rhone guys love in Paso, it's the same soil that's in Barolo and Barbaresco and Tuscany and Campania. That's what brought us here, is the soil, and, you know, I've subsequently I've done some events with Jason Haas, and he has these amazing presentations of why Tablas is here, and the soil, and the exposures, and so 
amazing. And usually I follow him and then I say, well, everything that Jason did and spent money on and research is what brought us here. And we didn't have to do any of that stuff because (laughs) Jason, but, um, that's really it. And I mean, really that, I think that, that speaks to what a lot of us in Paso who are really serious about this are here for is the amazing soil, the high pH soil, the calcareous soil, and what that does is it really helps the grapes maintain acidity. It keeps the berries smaller. It gives you more phenolics in the skins, which give you flavors and colors and all that stuff. So thus making um, great wine, world-class wine. Oh, yeah. And no, it's, it's, uh, it's been great. You know, we started 15 years ago with a single barrel of wine. And, you know, now we're, you know, we're, we're making three to 4,000 cases a year. And, uh, you know, we sell our wines all over the world. So it's been, you know, a long journey, but it's really been, uh, you know, well, well worth it. And I'm glad we, we ended up in Paso. I also want to talk about Eto Pasta. Eto is something very exciting. And I remember talking to you about it as it was like lifting and then it's hitting this like incredible trajectory. I remember one of the things you said on the radio that was so interesting was that now there's so many wineries. Yeah. And even if you do stand out and have a world-class wine, there are so Mm. many. um, There are no pasta purveyors right here. And and you guys are doing something exciting with Eto. And it's funny. I've just been hanging out with the the slow bread bike guy and and uh, he's he's a really great guy. And he said, man, I was going to I was going to start pasta here. But then I saw Eto and everyone told me, like, there's no way. And I said, ah, you could still do pasta. But but it's, it's kind of interesting with all the wineries here. You know, I, to my knowledge, I'm still the only one really 100 miles around that's making fresh and dried pasta. So and that really, you know, it developed over time. But when we meet with people and talk about our wines, our, our conversations generally go to go to Italy and the and the food of Italy, the regional foods of Italy. And, and of course, pasta comes up in the conversations, you know, whether it's, you know, Tuscany, where you have like a chingale sauce with wild boar or in the south, you have maybe a spicier tomato based sauce. You know, the wines in Italy developed in lockstep with the foods of Italy. And what Eto allowed me to do is is not just talk to people about the wine and the food of Italy, but but allows me to, to, to really show that. And then they can, uh, you know, purchase and create perfect pairings of, you know, pasta from Southern Italy with a wine from Southern Italy. These two wines we're tasting today are both coastal Southern Italian wines and that's where my brain goes with wine is like, what's, what's the food that, that needs to be with this wine or vice versa? You know, you you make a great meal and, and what do you want to, what do you want to eat with it? In Italy, wine is generally consumed only at meals. You know, it's, it's really considered just kind of a part of the, the dinner table or lunch table or whatever, whatever you want. So. How did you say, okay, we're going to figure out <laughs> and make a world-class wine. We can't just do mid-grade pasta we need to make really world-class pasta and within the first year and a half i mean you had over a dozen restaurants discovering your pasta and bringing it in as their house pasta yeah i mean the pasta thing so i i I really took the same approach i took to wine so with wine you know I, i went to italy i worked i studied traveled i did the same thing with pasta i went I met a guy in Los Angeles who sells equipment and, and he's almost become, I actually spoke to him about a half hour ago. He reminds me of my grandfather. It's just amazing. And we went to Italy together and we visited the best pasta producers, equipment producers, because he can sell any type of equipment. And, and he's kind of been an advisor to me. And then, you know, we enjoyed pasta from different regions and different places. Um, 
you know, and settled on the best equipment we could buy. And, and our equipment, it's only the second time they've sold the equipment in the United States. There's a company in New York that's been pretty successful that uses it. But, you know, to my knowledge, we're, you know, we're among, you know, two companies that use this equipment, you know, and then researching ingredients. So all our flour is organic Durham semolina from the West Coast you know, purified water. And it's, it's really simple, but you know, it probably took a year and a half of research, spending time trying to, trying to figure a lot of stuff out. So it's, what's exciting is that there have um, been more than one story. I have personal friends who have, you know, digestion issues. They stay away from the box pasta in the store or from certain restaurants because they know it will adversely, you know, affect them. But can can eat your pasta i mean yeah, when you no, hear stories like that it's pretty yeah. wild no it's it's all ingredients you know and there's, there's a lot of reasons why why that's true and i'd probably bore your audience if i if i went into them too heavily but people with pretty serious gluten tolerance issues can can do really well with eto pasta eto means 100 grams right this would be a serving it's a serving yeah so i like names in italian that are really simple so my last name terizzi terizzi you know it's people see it there's two r's two z's it's very intimidating eto is really simple it's easy to remember and when i first moved to italy I had no idea. I didn't know. I didn't know the language at all. I, I still am pretty bad, but I can <laughs> I can get by. But but I did notice um, because I I had an apartment. I had to eat stuff that you could go in and everything sold by the etto, which is like a quarter pound. So I I just point at stuff and go un etto un etto un etto. So so it's kind of how I lived is ordering everything by the etto and. <laughs> That really stuck with me, and and you know Italians that see my product, they go, they would they would never name a product Eto because it's it's such a common word, but they're like, oh my god, that's so brilliant, yeah, because. We use Eto every day. It's it's just a part of the culture. So you guys have really evolved in the kind of pastas you make, the, the shapes. What do you call that? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, cut short shapes of pasta. Right. Uh, you know, it's really endless what you can create with with pasta machines. And you've even made ramen. Yeah, we we've done we've done ramen noodles. And we do that once a month. You know, it's all it's all about what's going to be interesting. We live in a we live in a place we're very lucky that's very supportive of of anyone trying anything. Well, thanks for taking the time to do that because when and you got to find Eto Pasta. It's a red cubed box, and if it's at your store or you can just come into Tin City to Eto and get it, you notice a difference. This pasta will taste like high-end pasta. I didn't even know there was such a thing as a yeah, taste like high-end pasta, you, you but know, it does. Th- yeah, there's a lot of differences, so you know, it's it's the real deal. Who knew? I love it. We have a winemaker who has a strong pasta game. Brian Terizzi is with Giornata. Talk about Tin City. I mean, what's been the latest with Tin City going on in, in summer and how, how things are shaping up with everything going on now? Yeah, I mean, Tin City, I mean, you know, we, we've had some things kind of open here Eto is a grocery store, so we've never closed, and we've been really busy the whole time. And then, as things began to open, it was it was almost scary because everyone wanted to get out of the house. We were all very busy, which is nice because this is how we make our living. But at the same time, it it seemed a little overwhelming, and it's like you know we're still in the middle of this global pandemic, right? So we gotta we gotta worry. And now, you know, now we've shifted to outside, which 
it's a huge pain, but it's probably the right thing based on you know the science and and the spread. So everyone's really adjusted to being outside uh, and doing appointments, and we've always done appointments only. But a lot of folks around here have said the appointment thing is has been great for them. You know, they have more. I of a, keep hearing this. Yeah, yeah, and it's more thoughtful consumer. Yeah, I mean that's why we do it. Our wines are are pretty out there, so we we like to you know it, it kind of filters who comes to us because you know some folks you know they see our wines and they're like what what are these things? But but most people who make appointments, they've done a little research, they know what they're up for. And, and I think the appointment thing, I mean, I think it's going to stick around Paso for a long time. I mean, as it, you know, as coronavirus hopefully goes away, um, I think the appointment model will, will stay. And, and, you know, I know some wineries who have said, I'm never, I'm going to always do appointments from now on. Yeah, I've actually, I know a winery on the west side that went to appointment tasting pre-COVID and noticed tasting themselves up. You know, oh yeah, just because I think it's a different, it's a more curious consumer. Yeah, when we when we, so we've always done appointments here, but you know there were times where it was kind of like this big open tin city weekend, and there were like passports, and and we didn't do the appointments during those, and it, it, for us it didn't work well. Um, our sales were less. I don't think the experience was as good for our guests, and and that was a few years ago. I mean, we we just have said we're only doing appointments i mean that's just the way it goes and you know it's not a snobby thing some people are like oh you're appointment only it's kind of snobby but it's it's really to give our guests the best experience you know and that's one thing that paso is so it's so interesting how this that word experience is really kind of taking over i mean it's not just about getting up to that bar and having your glass full of an ounce or two here or there it's really, what am I going to take away? What do you want people to take away when they leave Giornata, perhaps leave Eto, get on the road back home? What do you want to take away from the experience they've had with your brands, Brian? Really for us, it's, it's just learning about who we are as a family, what, you know, what we treasure in the experience of our wines at the table and you know, to bring Eto into it and you know, this, this whole combination of food and wine and you know, just, just the beauty of being with friends and family around a table. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. And if you like, if you like the wine, that's great. And, but you know, and we, we like to educate people. I mean, that's a big part of what we do here. So what are the websites people can uh, learn more about Giornata and Eto? Yeah. So Giornata is just giornatawines.com. And if you Google it, it should come up. And then Eto is etopastificho.com. Pastaficho. Pastaficho. So, yeah, pastaficho <laughs> is just a fancy word for pasta factory. And you make great Italian dishes. You brought some into the studio yeah, on yeah, the radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was just like your, you did a real simple one. I'm like, I, I did a chicken, like a, I did a version of baked ziti, but yeah. with chicken. Um, stupid good. Yeah. And it was all ingredients that you can get at Eto. You know, I, I, I do little tricks, like I'll put a little tomato paste we have this killer tomato paste from italy as you're cooking stuff to get some caramelization i mean you know what's interesting cooking and winemaking it's it's really the same thing and there's there's reactions and you said not to get too geeky but there's like the mailer browning reaction which you know it's how you make steaks and how you but it's the same thing with cooking it's the same thing with wine you know when, when your wine's in a barrel or an amphora you get these reactions that that's what makes 
wine and food so interesting, you know? You know, if um, you're ever in Tin City, stop at Eto. I promise you will not regret it. And if you are lucky enough to see Steph or Brian there, don't hesitate to ask them a question. Ask them for a recommendation. They'll walk you to this. Oh, you know, we just got this in. Or, you know, it's really hot and I got one left. It's this. I mean, I can't think of how many times I filled my bag with something that you were like, hey, Adam, just try this. You're so good with helping people understand, you know, whether it's this gravy or this, that. I didn't even know they yeah, called yeah. it gravy. Oh, no, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, you know, this is, this is something, you know, I grew up cooking with my grandmother when I was, you know, five years old and now I'm like 50. I mean, it's crazy to think about, but you know, it's been a lifelong journey, you know, the whole, the whole food and wine adventure. And I mean, we work every day, but we do it because we love it. I mean, we love educating people and, you know, people share recipes with us and it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing, you know? Yeah. Giornata, world-class wines, lean and mean. They do not make a lot of it. Like you said, maybe about 3000 cases. The wines here are super thoughtful and very, very tasty. Next time you're in Tin City, come check out Giornata wines. On the other side of Tin City, you will find Eto, and you will often find Brian walking around here. It was really good to see you. Did you have yeah. fun? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, man. No, I always love I when was, I get I a chance like to talk to you. No, thank you very much. For more on what the craft producers are doing in Tin City, you can follow along with them on Instagram at Tin City Paso Robles. And next time you're there, make sure you tag them and your favorite producer. Our next guest is excelling in her tasting room game in a place completely the opposite of an industrial area. She is smack dab in the middle of downtown Paso. The heart of the downtown area is just incredible. Not sure the last time you've experienced it, but it's just such a special place. And today, there are more tasting rooms than ever, now all within walking distance. Bodegas Paso Robles is on 13th Street, close to Spring, which is the main drag through downtown Paso. Talk about social distancing. I am inside Dorothy's tasting room, and Dorothy is literally outside. Thank God for long mic cables, but there's nothing that can keep me from a fun conversation with Dorothy Schuler. I do enjoy her, and I also love her wines. So give me that mm, sound, we'll get by, we pass on round till the job is camped out in the trees. It will simplify good company. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> it's so good to see you, Dorothy. Thanks for having me downtown. Oh, well, thanks for coming by. The Queens of 13th Street. Look at this. Bodegas Hassel Robles. Focus on uh, Portuguese, Spanish varietals. And we're doing it downtown. And I mean, you guys, you've been here for a while. But the downtown is really bustling. And it's becoming a great place for tasting rooms. Now, there are now 25 or 26 of us, which is amazing. Because we started out with, I think... Five, Then we slowly went up, and then all of a sudden, there was like this explosion of tasting rooms. Yeah. And they're everywhere. You know, in the last episode, we asked, why Paso? Why downtown for Bodegas Paso Robles? Well, because we weren't rich when we came here, and it seemed like the best thing to do for us. We could rent a space. I could make my wine elsewhere. And... At my age, I did not want to get in super debt and, and have to put in a, you know, a winery and all of that. It was too much. And so downtown made a lot of sense. 
Now, are we doing by appointment only these days, or how has uh, everything been since... Um appointment only. Uh, our tasting room is really tiny, and we are actually serving outside at our lovely ironing board bars. That's pretty cool. I like that. You make those? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> those look so... My mom would have loved those, too. That is really, really cool looking. So, um, but it's small. It has to be by appointment only right now. There is no other way to do it. And I think a lot of people are doing that anyway because you don't want crowds of people coming in, then upsetting people because you have to turn them away. It's just better if people call ahead. One of the cool things about your history, you, um, you're a writer and you were an editor of Timothy Leary. Yep. And this, talk about this history and, and, and even how that kind of enveloped your, your love for wine or if that Venn diagram ever crossed over into here. Well, you know, I was... Uh... I was talking about rosé one day at one of these seminars we had with the Wine Alliance, and I was pouring the rosé at the event, and I told this story about how Tim and I would go out to lunch, and no matter what restaurant we went into, of course, there would be waiters who were actors, so everybody was just gorgeous. But there were a lot of foreign waiters and waitresses, and Tim could speak, I don't know how many languages, but he could speak menu in a lot of languages <laughs> so he used to order white wine spritzers for lunch it makes sense and that's he was on to something those are hot now <laughs> i know i know this was in, the, in 1977 wow and a white wine spritzer or 76 and with lunch and it was fine and you know you didn't get drunk you know had a nice little wine fizz with lunch and that's when i learned to do that so I like a, a rosé wine spritzer. Is that what you order? No, I had a white wine spritzer with Tim. Yeah. I normally didn't drink at lunch in those days. I was pretty young. What was that like, that experience? I mean, people can just Google Timothy Leary if they're unfamiliar with his I have, lore. I have had so many bizarre experiences with friends of his. Incredibly bizarre. And in your tasting room, isn't there around me? Didn't you have a, a letter? There's that, a letter right over there. That he wrote about you. Just to, to me. I yeah. liked it, so I saved it. Yeah. Well, what did that friendship mean to you? Um, well, number one, it was work. I got assigned to him. Nobody else wanted to do it. So it was work, first off. When you first got that gig, were you like, oh, man, this is going to be uphill. This is going to be tough. How do, I, how do you edit Timothy Leary for crying I out was loud? so young. I said, okay, I could handle this. I'd known somebody who had gone. I'd actually dated this guy, David, who'd gone to Millbrook back in New York State. And he sort of had a bad trip and freaked out, and his parents had to take him home and get him all, you know, better. And um, he used to talk about Tim many, many years ago. That was in the 60s. And so I, I sort of knew what to expect on some level. I knew he was unusual, and he was. He was brilliant. I don't know anybody who's ever known that man would never say that acid fried his brain. The man was quick. Would, would people... Was that interaction and getting to know him at the level you did, was that almost a lesson in not discounting people if they were maybe perceived by others to be odd or weird or out of the box? It was a lesson in more than that. He had a lot of people who just sort of were like puppy dogs around him, panting. And I think, you know, famous people tend to like a little bit of that. And, and Tim liked a little bit of that. But I saw him not like a lot of that. I, and he was really funny if, if the people who did it weren't doing it in a smart way. 
You know, uh, like I mentioned before, the last episode, we asked kind of why Paso. You told us why downtown, but why did Bodegas Paso Robles and your winemaking, what brought you to Paso Robles? It's exactly in between L.A. and San Francisco. Have you ever seen the sign over at the... uh the fairgrounds, yeah. we're exactly one mile closer to San Francisco than we are to L.A. My husband's family is up north. My family's down south. It was really that simple. And my husband grew up on the central coast. So for him, it was sort of a homecoming. He did, never lived in Paso, but he lived all over the central coast. I like to hear. You can do what you like. It's very open to all sorts of experiences, different kinds of people. There is not one Paso way. Well, it's cool because, you know, back in the day when Paso was just getting, you know, its feet under itself, you know, there was a lot of like vineyard tasting rooms, a lot of people with like their estate properties. And we were talking a little bit about this. It's really tough game to get here and like buy property. And a lot of the folks, if you can make great relationships to get good fruit, I mean, these urban type of tasting rooms are a great way to go and get seen. I agree. When we first started the downtown wineries, uh, there's a a guy who's been making wine here forever, he said, Dorothy, this is a dumb idea. This is never going to work. You want to tell us who it was? No. Okay. <laughs> Maybe off the air. <laughs> and, and he said, this is never going to work. He says, I, don't, I, I think you're nuts. And there were a couple of growers who said the same thing to me. And uh, the one who said it was never going to work said, you know, you guys have done a really good job and you bring something to our community now. And what does that feel like to hear that? Because obviously everybody wants to survive. We want to meet the bottom line. We don't get into the wine business to make trillions of dollars, but we, we, want, to, we want to do well with, with our product. When you hear that, you know, the role that you're playing in the community, that's got to feel really good. Yeah, we've done a good job, all of us downtown wineries. We help bring people to town. They go out in the hinterlands, but I think they like to have a glass of wine when they eat their lunch. How important has the evolution of downtown, I guess you're obviously a part of it, but I mean now, you know, in addition to tasting rooms, you got great restaurants, you got new stuff, new exciting things. How important are those to that vibe that we're creating here? It has to be a little bit of everything because people will not come just to taste wine. They will not come just to eat. They want to buy clothing. They want to go shopping. Let's talk about why you like the Spanish and Portuguese varieties because, you know, you know, Rones are popular in Paso, but everyone is still kind of stuck on like the cabs and Chardonnays. I mean, obviously the, the buying public has been stuck on these for decades. Sometimes it, I imagine, I imagine it's sometimes hard to educate every person that comes in here on Graciano, on Tempranillo. Uh, how do we do that? And how do we make these really stand out? And what is Paso's fingerprint on these varieties as they grow here? Well, let's start with the, the white that is very particular to Spain. And that would be Albarino. We have. I love the, your Albarino. Huh? I, I, I love Albarino. I've been making it for years. We now have 38 Albarino producers on the Central Coast. There, I was the second. There only used to be two such producers on the Central Coast, and now there's 38 of us. And so clearly the popularity of Albarino has grown. And we were having an Albarino festival for a while. That was fun. I remember that one time, uh, Christian Rogano, he brought over that uh, sparkling Albarino wine. Right. That was super cool. And he, and he, he sorted it, he sabered off sabered the sabered that bee right there. I loved it. You ever saber a bottle of wine? No, and I don't want to. Why not? Why not? No. You want to try it? No. I'm not. I, I, sometimes I could, could be a little clumsy. I would probably, you know, break the bottle, have... Glass go everywhere. 
<laughs> sliver would break my glasses and stick in my eye. You, um, there I'd be. Nothing would happen to those Sally Jesse Raphael glasses. Those things are indestructible, I bet. I would love to bring... I got for Christmas... Um, my girl gave me a knife, like one of these sabering knives that are literally meant for that. Because typically you would use the back side of the knife. You don't need the sharp part. You just need to meet that, you know, the lip and where the glass, like the weakest part of the, the bottle. If you keep a bottle really cold, don't shake it too much. You keep that neck super cold. You could go up the neck of that bottle and that thing will just jump right off. And you would wow. feel, you would love it. You would feel so accomplished. It's the greatest feeling. It's all right. You don't need it. I don't need it. (laughs) What are some other Spanish and Portuguese varieties that you've brought in here to blend that have uh, hit home with a lot of people and people really enjoy? Well, we've got, I think the next one you're going to taste has Tariga Nacional in it. And that's becoming a really big grape now in uh, Portugal and Spain. And you're going to see more and more of that here, too. People are liking it. It grows well here? It's big. It's bold. But it's got a lot of innuendo in it. What, I like that. I like that you put that. What is it about Paso Robles wine country that allows so many different kinds of varieties to excel at a world-class level here? We have so many different microclimates and so many different kinds of soil. And so some places, the Tempranillo is not as good as in other places. Tempranillo does like the heat, and we're going to have heat here. It likes the heat more than Cabernet likes the heat. Albarino likes it cool. I mean, you can grow Albarino in the heat, but eh, it's not going to have enough acid in it for my taste. So, but we have places it will grow. It's like we have places that Chardonnay will grow here. This is not a Chardonnay town, but there's a couple of little places where you can grow some fabulous Chardonnay here. That's so interesting that Paso has all these little microclimates that allow so many different varieties to perform so well. It's wonderful. Let's talk a little bit more about the vibe of downtown Paso. And when somebody comes in here, what's the experience that you want them to take away from Bodegas Paso Robles? Well, I want them to feel really comfortable with Spanish wines and Portuguese wines after they walk out of here. I want them to feel that they tried something different, that they didn't expect to try, and that they liked it when they were a little nervous about even trying it. What do you think is special about the downtown scene? here now and how it's changing and evolving? Well, since there's more and more tasting rooms and we have more different kinds of restaurants, I mean, on this block alone, we've got, what, seven restaurants? The street alone in the two-block area? Yeah. I think we have seven restaurants. Like really, really good ones. Yes, really, really good ones. And they're all different. Nobody seems to be being too repetitive with the restaurant concepts either, which I think is really good. Yeah. Yeah, and you're going to see more and more late night stuff happening. They just opened a piano bar next to me. And so, then that Alchemist Garden across in the park, the old Via Creek. This one has some really cool, like local folks that that backed it and are going to be inside, like working the bar situation and stuff. Like the the dude from Allegretto, Andrew, and the dude from Eleven Twenty Two. Oh, good, uh, Tony. Yeah, I think it's going to be really cool. I think the downtown area is like in a very special and exciting time right now. I think so too. And, you know, even if you don't want to eat downtown, you can do takeout. And then with people putting everything out on the sidewalk, I think that's really helped people feel more comfortable. So obviously, in addition to the folks who are coming to visit and making appointments with Bodegas Paso Robles, and you can do that on the website, I'm sure, I imagine uh, the wine club, you're probably getting more people involved in that, and I bet those people are super important to you at this time. Well, I think most of us are really, really happy that we have really good wine club members. Our wine club members have been fantastic. Uh, We have 
these two guys, I don't know how many cases of wine they've sold to their friends or made their friends buy. Heather has this one guy back in Massachusetts. I mean, he, how many, I mean, he's just gone nuts. Yeah. Four, four cases here, four cases there. And it was, it, was, uh, it was good because we lost all our wholesale accounts, of course, as did everybody else, mostly. I'm mostly high-end restaurants. Yeah. I mean, the restaurants are selling what they've got. They're not really putting money into wine inventory right, right. now. Or not expensive wine inventory, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, one thing I have always enjoyed, you know, we, we talk on this podcast about the people, and I've been lucky enough to interview folks like yourself for the last 10 years with the Cork Dork Show and, and the other stuff that I've been into, and I've always enjoyed your company, and I've always enjoyed your personality. It's been so much fun to talk to you. You're such a sweetheart. <laughs> Two great places, very atypical of wine country. Tin City is the first urban wine scene I've visited that is just done right. It's perfect. It's so Paso. It's nicer and way more approachable than Lompoc's wine ghetto and not as stuffy and doesn't try and be all swanky like SB's Funk Zone. You have to check out all the different things that got going on there, what they're producing. If you're around here during the holidays, I tell you, nobody does a tricked out forklift parade like tin city tin city is the website or get a feel of the collective vibe on instagram at tin city Robles. as far as downtown paso it is the part of paso that may be changing the fastest its evolution is exciting with la petite canaille great french restaurant in the last year 1122 this little speakeasy craft cocktail bar that was on the list of like top 50 hidden bars in the world, Amsterdam, brand new piano bar, the alchemist garden and more. You just got to check it out. You won't regret it. You can learn more at travelpaso.com. but always check out PasoWine.com for the latest. It's an essential resource before you plan your next trip. You know what? I'm looking forward to episode number five. We're going to talk to a couple of Paso peeps who not only have world-class wine to brag about, but two brands that took experiencing Paso to the next level. Both of these pioneers in the way that they did it, and one of them does it 200-plus feet above the vineyards. Do not miss episode number five, I promise. Thanks for hanging out. Please share this podcast with someone who loves wine, who loves chasing a dream, or who just loves Paso Robles wine country. Also, thanks for your comments about the music here for the podcast, Where Wine Takes You, our thanks to Moonshiner Collective, the band for the song we've been using called Good Company. I encourage you to check out their music on Spotify or wherever you get your music, led by a Central Coast friend and popular singer-songwriter Dan Curcio. Check it out on Spotify, Moonshiner Collective. You can also log on to their website, moonshinercollective.com. Some fantastic music. I think you'll dig it. I'm your host, Adam Montiel. Next time you're on the Central Coast, check me out on your radio, Coast 104.5, up and at them in the morning, or on the Crush 92.5, peeling the layers back on this great place. And the people of Paso Robles Wine Country, it's fun to discover where wine takes you. And give me that sound, get bowing, pass
all round till the job is done. Camp out in the trees, it will simplify. Good comp, give me that moonshine. Get by, wink pass all round till the job is done. Camp out in the trees, it will simplify. Good comp, give me that moonshine. Get by, wink pass all round till the job is done.